Well, my goal and my prayer for tonight is that I will have as little as possible to answer before the Lord in messing you up tonight. I say that uh, somewhat jokingly, somewhat just in humility. Let me just tell you, as, as uh, I don't think any part, we're, we're going we're gonna to close out the last two uh, chapters of the middle portion of Revelation tonight. We're going to look at chapter 17, chapter 18, and that'll let us in the next couple weeks as we finish it out on Sunday morning, uh, start to put, put things together, ask the question, how does all this fit together? What, how, how does all this, what ways could it play out? But for me personally, I don't think any part of Revelation leaves me with as many questions as chapter 17. Now, that's not to say that's because I have figured the rest of it out. That's to magnify. No part has left me with as many questions as chapter 17, and you will find uh, no shortage of godly, scholarly, confident answers that may or may not be correct, some of, some of which can't both be correct because they're polar opposite in nature. Uh, you will find as you, as you look at various uh, pastors and theologians throughout history, ways they will interpret things in this passage are heavily influenced by what uh, one of the, you know, which one of the three generally speaking uh, views of the millennium they hold. Uh, we've looked at those briefly before. We'll come back and look at that starting next week. Are they post-millennial, that Jesus comes back after a, some sort of symbolic um, thousand-year reign? Is, is it amillennial, that there is, is, is there, it's just the age of the church and Jesus comes back at the end? Or is there, do they land premillennial, believing there's a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus, that Jesus comes back beforehand. They'll heavily be influenced by that because the nature of that dictates a lot of how they view the rest of, of Revelation. And so that said, uh, we're going to do the best we can tonight. There are some clear things we can walk away with and clear application we can take in and put into our life, and we'll, we will do that. But know that uh, there, there are great mysteries, even in this passage, the angel, uh, the angel speaking with John uh, even says, um, these are things which demand great wisdom. So, uh, if you remember back, Revelation 16, we Revelation 15, it's announced that the final time of of God's uh, of the of the the judgment of God that He's going to pour out in His bold judgments on on this earth. So this is prior to end judgment. This is prior to the last battles. This is. Uh, during the end of the tribulation, uh, John sees seven angels, seven bowls. We get to chapter 16, and we see each one of those bowls poured out. And then at the end of chapter 16, as the seventh bowl is being poured out, here's what it says in uh, verse 18. There were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as that not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty... The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. We mentioned last time, likely their great city is referencing the city of Jerusalem in that context, especially because, look, the great city was split in three. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island flowed, and it goes on from there. But that's the key statement. In, in that final bowl, it is stated, Babylon the Great was remembered before God 
that she would receive the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now off of that, look with me at 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth commit immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So John says, he says, then when I saw one of the angels came, he said, hey, I'm going to take you and I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot. This is the great harlot who sits on many waters. We'll find out later that the many waters is, is, uh, is there uh, referencing the, na- the people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, that people around the world... Uh, People, the kings of the earth have, have committed immorality with her. The people of the earth are drunk with uh, the wine of immorality. This is this major figure, and, he, and the angel says, John, I'm going to take you to see the judgment of this character. So naturally, and I'm setting you up for something, naturally, if you were here that in John's shoes, what do you expect the next thing to see? You just said, I'm going to see the judgment. But watch what he sees first. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, the beast being full of blasphemous blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've seen this exact beast before. This is the beast of Revelation, the first part of Revelation 13. Uh, We would call this beast the Antichrist with a a capital A says the woman was sitting on the beast. The woman, verse 4, was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. And here's the name, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Now, that's two ways of of referring to the same group of people. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly, or I, I marveled, what is going on? And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. So John sees, the angel carries him away to a wilderness, and he sees this woman. Now, the description of the woman, before we break any of it down, you need to understand, the description of the woman is a description of a beautiful, attractive, desirable woman. That's the depiction. Now, we, we can get, and we can get lost, but the picture is that this is a woman. She's clothes of red majesty, purple royalty. This is someone who, and, and someone who has the wealth to purchase the two colors of fabric, which are the most costly. Someone who portrays themselves having majesty of, of, of ruling of, and, ha- and having wealth, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls. She, she has the, the, the greatest of jewelry to adorn herself and in and the power that goes with it and in a cup full of abominations a word that refers to to things which eternally stink before God because they are they are disgusting and detestable to God and 
unclean things on her forehead. And, and as to the mystery of who is this woman, the name is given, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Not only that, but he saw not only does this woman look beautiful and attractive and powerful and, and wealthy, and not only is there a, a cup that, and remember it's already said, the kings of the earth and the people of the earth, they're drunk with the wine of their immorality. Well, what's in that cup? It's things that are detestable and disgusting and vile before the holy character of God that, that the nations have drunk and are, are filled with, bought into everything this woman offers, the, the attractiveness of this woman. They are completely bought in and, and in that drunken stupor, numb to the reality that what they think they can purchase from this woman will actually only secure for them judgment. It says not only that, but this woman, she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who give testimony to Jesus, meaning that this woman is at the heart of the martyrdom, of the persecution of God's people. And in the context, as we've seen in Revelation, there's been this theme throughout the book of, of God's people have been ruthlessly hunted down and and slaughtered, martyred, killed. So this is a dangerous and murderous woman. And, and you understand now, and she's riding, not to, not to look over this, but the fact that she is riding the beast, which we've already seen, this is a fierce, uh, for Daniel was an indescribably fierce beast. This is the, the single most wicked and powerful ruler the world will ever have seen in, in flesh. And she rides, propped up by the power and both, empower, and both a part of. And you can imagine, John, wait a minute, you just said we're going to see the judgment. Wow, what is, in fact, the language there when it says John marveled, uh, there, there's really, there's two ways you could take that language. One is that John, there was, John marveled in the sense of there was, there was somewhat he was drawn to this, in which case the angelic rebuke would be, cut it out, you're, you're getting allured. That's, that is grammatically possible. That's not what I think is realistic. The other option, which I think is it, is he marveled in the sense of there is a terror and a fear, a worry at what he is seeing. Because far from seeing judgment, he is seeing a Jezebel-like character whose name is Babylon the Great, which what is Babylon famous for? The absolute destruction of God's people. And, and, and there's no judgment taking place here. There's danger. So the angel says, why are you marveling? Don't Stop being afraid. Stop being worried. I'm going to give you the answer. But here, here's the imagery that is used here, and, I, and I'm going to... I'm, I'm, going to just mention some things that come from 18 before we, before we get there. Who is Babylon the Great here? What is taking place? Uh, there, you, you will, as I mentioned, you will find a lot of different ways of defining who this woman is. One, we're not talking about a literal uh, woman, like there are literal women in this room. We're not talking about a literal woman like Jezebel was an actual woman named Jezebel who lived in a finite place for a finite time. Uh, there, there's symbolism here. 
And the symbolism of Babylon the Great, this is the best way to synthesize what's out there. Everything comes, even regardless of the different end times views, everything comes roughly to this. Babylon represents the socio-economic religious system of the world, which in this case, writing the Antichrist, is in full league with the political and military power of the world to seduce mankind away from worship of God to worship of falsehood and to persecute the people of God. Babylon the Great here in that way stands for the socioeconomic, cultural, and religious system of the world that is in complete opposition to God, to the worship of God, to the following of His people. The language of harlotry, of immorality, all that language is pulled right out. We don't have time tonight to go pull the many, many, many Old Testament references, but all that is pulled out of the Old Testament, which describes false worship. Idolatry, worship of false gods, false religion, hence a system of religion. Not only that, but we see uh, that they are that, that she herself is wealthy. There are uh, all these gold and, and precious jewels. We find out in the lament of chapter 18 that she, Babylon the Great, is the center of economics for the entire world. It's an economic system. It's in many ways tied together, and in, in this way, and I'll just give you my, my personal take, in this way, Babylon the Great is not only just an end times figure. Babylon the Great is the system of cultural, economic, religious system of the world that has its background all the way back in Genesis 10 at the Tower of Babel when there was a socioeconomic religious system that was attempted to prop up in place of God. What is Babel the ancient origin for? Babylon. So in this way, there is Babylon the Great as a system that exists in our world right now. Now, Babylon the Great is not riding on the dragon, the Antichrist right now. The Antichrist hasn't arisen but Babylon the Great is this system that will come to a full head of wicked fruition with the Antichrist. So John sees this and he's blown away. And so here's what the angel answers him in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here's what he says. Before we go to Babylon the Great, the woman Babylon, we're going to talk about the beast. And he says, the beast you saw, and we've seen this phrase. We looked at this back when we walked through chapter 13. Uh, at minimum, here's what this phrase is stating, right? What is one of the, one is one of the ways God reveals himself? I'm the Lord your God who was and is and is to come. This is like the anti-version of that. Shocker. The one, who, the, the one who was and is not and is about to come. At minimum, this is, this is a, a way of referencing that the Antichrist is truly a, a profane mockery of the true Christ. We've seen this. Satan... The Antichrist, the false prophet, they create this, this false trinity, 
The beast who was, is not, and is not to come. That, that is literally, and in, that, in the way that the beast will, will be a, a, a false parody of Christ, the people of the world will marvel. They will worship. They will be amazed. They will be drawn in. Now, we've already seen that. Now, some will take it a little bit further in that statement and say, well, the one who was and is not, there is a reference there. If you'll remember back both in chapter, in, in chapter 13, there is a uh, reference that the, the beast, the Antichrist, the seven heads, one had a mortal wound and, and, and was back to life, that there's some false, um, just as he is a false Messiah, there is some action of the Antichrist, which will be a false essentially a mockery and deception of the resurrection, just like the Messiah was crucified and rose to life forever, that there is some kind of mockery. D different people will take that different ways. If, you're, uh, if you've read through all the Left Behind books, I believe in those books, there's a real death with a uh, pseudo-resurrection, at least a resurrection of a body that Satan inhabits. There's different ways that are there. We've talked in the past about, is, is it going to be a real resurrection? There, there are some challenges with that theologically to me because only God has the power to resurrect dead to life. Regardless, the point is the Antichrist, the people of the world will marvel Anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's in the in the in the, life, the book of life from the foundation of the world, we know only those names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world are those who have responded to Christ and have been saved by grace through faith. So what he says: Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are also seven kings or kingdoms. Five have fallen. One is, the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth king and is of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour they have one purpose, and that is to give their power and their authority to the beast. And if that doesn't make your head scratch, congratulations, you are infinitely more intelligent than I will ever be. Also, that is like the ultimate tongue twister. Try saying that 12 times fast. So here's what he says. He says, the beast which has seven heads. First thing he says, the seven heads are seven mountains. Now, this is, this is uh, in some ways, this is a fairly obvious reference. We've used the term Babylon the Great. She sits on seven mountains. Well, that would be very, to John's readers, the original recipients, that would be very instant. Rome, the city of seven hills. And so there is a sense, and that adds to the idea of why I say Babylon the Great here. We're not talking about the literal Babylon, the city that's set on the Euphrates, but we are talking about a system personified by that Babylon in John's day, personified and, and located, the epicenter of that, that spirit and system in the world set on Rome, the center of the empire, a place of unbelievable indulgence, of godlessness, and of false worship, seven hills. It says at the same time, the seven heads aren't just seven hills, which speaks not to what speaks to where the woman is located. It says that the seven uh, heads are also seven kings. 
Five have fallen, so five have come and gone. One is present, the other has yet to come. And when this one who is yet to come comes, he's got to stay for a little bit. There's a t- and there's a twofold to that. It means that his reign's not going to last forever. It's limited, but it's also necessary that he, does, he is going to come to power for a little bit. There's, there's no way of, of working things. There's no, you know, oh, uh, it's kind of like all the movies. The asteroid's going to come and hit the earth. Well, we got to do something to change the course. There's no changing the course. He's going to come. But it's also limited. And, and not only is it limited, it's, it's limited to a very short time. Now, there are, depending on your understanding, especially of, of the millennial kingdom and what that does to the rest of your understanding of end times, there are lots of ideas. They, they commonly fall, though, into one of two categories. Either seven is, is, is symbolic for completeness, and so it's a reference to the completeness of uh, kings and rulers that have to come before the Antichrist. That's one. Or that seven is referring to something literal. Now, most in this room uh, are, are probably, whether you realize it or not, you fall in a premillennial camp because, or and you say, well, how, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, have you ever read any of like the basic end times books that come out of Baptist life? Most of them are all premillennial, so that's why I'm guessing that. Doesn't have to be, but. If you're in that camp, most everyone's going to see these as literal. And in that category, there's one of two predominant options. One is we're talking about Roman kings, emperors. Now, the challenge with that is if John is writing when we're fairly certain he's writing at the, in the 90s AD, when Domitian is on the throne, there, there have been more than six emperors at that point. So you kind of have to play some fruit basket turnover and come up with some unique sets of standards to decide, well, which of these fit that. The other option, and that, so that's, the, the pro is, it's, it's a literal, you're dealing with literal kings, individuals, which fits the language a little bit better. The con is there's, there's no clear-cut fit. The other option is um, more in line with Daniel, and so this is where I land because of the imagery in Daniel, where a head, when it refers to a king, there's, there's kind of a dual connotation there. It can refer to a literal king. It can also refer to the kingdom that the literal king represents, right? We are a country who technically represents our country to the world. It's the president. That's one person today. If we were around the clock 20 years ago, it's a different person then, but it's still the president of the United States, regardless of if it's today or 20 years ago. If you go that direction, there, and, and you look at this, and to John's day, there have been six kingdoms notable throughout Scripture that have oppressed the people of God. The first, Egypt, one. The second, and when we say kingdom, we're not talking about just a localized people group like the Philistines. We're talking empires. Egypt, two, Assyria, capital in Nineveh, or at one point capital in Nineveh, three, Babylon, four, Medo-Persia, five, Greece, six, so five have gone, five have come, 
One is, number six, Rome, and one is yet to be, meaning the kingdom of the Antichrist, which we see, uh, we see in Daniel 7, we see uh, in Daniel, Daniel 11, we've seen throughout Revelation. Now that's where I land. The weakness of this is the language seems to harp more on the individual of a king than a than kingdom. Now, when I tell you stuff like that, I'm not trying to give you, well, gosh, you're making it ambiguous. I'm not trying, that's not my aim. My aim is to just be honest. We're dealing with prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled. When it's all fulfilled, we're all gonna go, ah, that's exactly like he said it would be. We're not there yet, and so I just want to always err on the side of humility uh, of what's there. So that's where I land, that he's referencing Five, five kingdoms have come and gone. The sixth kingdom is Rome. There is a seventh kingdom coming. But then he says that, and remember that the Antichrist in that way is both representative of a kingdom, but is also a literal individual. And that literal individual, when he comes to power, it makes that statement, is himself also an eighth, but one of the seven. Now, here's how I understand that. I won't have you turn there, but it, I, I'm just gonna quote it for you. But if you go back to Daniel 7, and Daniel 7 is a pivotal passage for much of what Revelation is built on, all right? Revelation is heavily pulls, especially from the book of Daniel. And Daniel 7 is when Daniel is given the vision of the four beasts, and he sees the, the playing out of the rest of world history really from a, a perspective of God sitting on the throne. Daniel 2, he sees this, you know, he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's vision, which is very much from a, a man view of the rest of history. Here he's seeing it from a heavenly view. So he sees these beasts. The first beast is Babylon. The second beast is, is Persia. The third beast is Greece. And, and there's all this precision in there, if, you, if you'll go back and remember. But then the fourth beast is an interesting beast because it's clearly Rome. But then it also describes that it's more than just Rome, that this beast has 10 horns. Well, that's also mentioned here, that the 10 horns on the Antichrist are 10 kings who rule kingdoms. That's also the language from Daniel 7. And it says, amongst those 10, there arises another horn. So he's, he's one of them, seven, but he's different than them, eight. He's different than them and going to do more than them, but he also rules them, eight, which is seven. So I think it's not as crazy as it sounds. It's just built on Daniel 7, where that's the imagery uh, of, of the little horn and how it comes across. So this is describing, he's describing the beast on which Babylon rides. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, meaning that when the beast attains his power, there are ten kings who will be given authority. Their authority is not of their own. It's because the beast allows them to have it, and it'll be for one purpose, and they ultimately give their power and authority back to the beast. And it's short. Notice, short. It's given one hour. Small bit of time. It says, these, the Antichrist and his ten horns, they will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And those who are with him, called and chosen and faithful. So here's the good news. It says, these are all going to come together. They're going to fight against the Lamb. Here's the deal. 
It's not going to be very eventful. It's going to be anticlimactic. Jesus wins. He's the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And those with him win by virtue of being his. Chosen and called, faithful. A beautiful picture of God's drawing of us, God's work in our salvation, of the call that that places on us to walk faithfully. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus wins, we who are with him. And so then he goes further and he says to me, the waters which you saw the harlot sit are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, which adds to the fact that the world is bought in completely. And at this point, at the end of history, the whole world is, is, is bought in. Now here's... here's part where, again, this is, read it and I'll give you the best understanding we can. I have lots of questions here that I frankly don't know given in answers until it plays out. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked. They will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. So here's at least at minimum, what's going to happen? If Babylon is representative of this socio-economic, religious, cultural system that is present, but will be even more so in the future, the world's bought in, that system, even though it is propped up by and benefits the Antichrist and the kings, there's going to come a point because evil is evil and evil backstabs evil, that they will turn against it they will turn against this system and they will bring and, and, and level Babylon. She will be backstabbed by the very beast she rides. Now you say, and here's where my question starts to come up. Well, what is that going to look like? Well, truth be told, it doesn't really tell us what it's going to look like. Uh, I, can, I can name for you different authors who will get very specific with it and say it's a campaign of the Antichrist and the kings against the citizens of the world. The natural question is, well, isn't it the citizens of the world that make up their army that ride into battle against Jesus? Question. Not saying it's wrong, just question. Another one will say, well, we'll harp more on Babylon being the religious system and the Antichrist being the political system, in which case what the Antichrist does is they get sick of the religious system. And like in a lot of countries where there's a church-state wedding, one of them is going to rule out over the other. And in this case, the state lops off the religious system. Uh, the challenge with that is the religious system of the Antichrist is promoted by the false prophet who's in the unholy trinity and they're both in league together at the last. So my point is, what is all this gonna look out? Some, and I'll let me back up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed I didn't already tell you this as a church history buff. For a lot of church history, the woman Babylon has been interpreted as the Roman Catholic church. Because during the Reformation, the imagery that, it, that she is described fit the imagery of what the Pope adorned himself in. The unholy alliance between the government, the beast, and the, and, and the church, and the unbelievable persecution that was leveled at anybody who would not fit into the rule of the Roman Catholic Church, that heavy, heavy view, that, has, that there's still some who will hold to that. And in that sense, it would be akin, uh, and some would, uh, not all, but some who hold that would go and say that that sets up really an apostate church of the end times. And this is the point where the false prophet and the Antichrist, they've 
they've gotten what they need out of the apostate church and they take it out. I give you all that just so you're informed. The, the real reality is if you're going to go, what is, you know, Wes, you tell us right now and you better not be wrong. It, it just says that they turn, their, that, that they take out Babylon, the system. Now, here's what's interesting about them taking her out, though, and this is ought to put us in awe. Why? Why do they turn? We can go, well, it's because they're evil, you know. It's what most evil empires do. They, they bicker and turn on each other. That's true, but why? There's a deeper reason. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the final words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Ultimately, why is there this, is even at the height of wickedness on this world, even the forces of wickedness which oppose God will accomplish his will because God's just that great. That even the forces who are totally opposed to him will accomplish his very will in bringing judgment on Babylon, the system, before he steps down out of heaven to bring judgment upon the beast and the kings and those who march in their army. Now, that's mind-blowing and ought to put us in awe. There, there was, um, last fall, I went back and read through the Silmarillion, which is the, you got to read it like a history book, but it's essentially everything that J.R.R. Tolkien ever thought up that happened prior to The Hobbit. It's the simplest definition. Now, it's fascinating. It's not intended to be an allegory for Scripture, but you can clearly pick up where Tolkien is using theological themes from Scripture and weaving it into this fantasy. And the ultimate bad guy is, is a uh, created being. There's one God. He created these beings, which are very much like angels. And one of them turns. Again, it's very easy to pick up. He's not an allegory, but he is using themes. And I can't remember. I, 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 I need to write it down because I thought, that what a a great way to phrase in a modern tongue what this is saying, where even in all of the wickedness that Melkor, the villain, wanted to do, at the end of it, even Melkor would end up accomplishing God's ultimate purpose, and he wouldn't get to win. None of his discord would amount in any victory for him. Now, that's not me saying God approves of Satan's actions. Don't mishear me. That's not... The purpose is saying even the most wicked of wickedness, God is so sovereign in his rule that even as they are rebelling and seeking to, to come against God, they will, without realizing it, play right into his hands and accomplish his will. That's incredible. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. Our God is up to things even when bad things are happening in our governments that threaten our lives. And we better make sure we lock into that because not knowing what's going on in our world this year and the years beyond, if we are not grounded and really trusting that our God is that in control and that human history is not, doesn't mean he approves of it all, doesn't even mean he's causing it all but he is in control and he is faithful to his word. 
If we do not have that rock solid in our hearts, it'll only be that much harder as the world falls apart around us. So here's what happens. That, that happens when we get into chapter 18. Now, I know I've spent 40 minutes getting through 17, and there's a reason for that. 18 is essentially a, there, there's a command that we need to see, and there is a lament by the world because Babylon has now fallen. The system of this world, which you and I watch people daily capitulate to and worship and, 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 and choose to worship over God and, and the, 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 for the sake of material wealth, for the sake of false religion, for the sake of economic gain and, and health and wealth, all of this system that we see today, certainly, and, and it will only heighten when the Antichrist comes, it's fallen. And here's what it says. These angels, another angel coming down from heaven with great authority on the earth, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, declaring, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. It is a proclamation of absolute doom. Babylon the Great, if you think of as a city, is now an uh, uninhabited zombie town of evil spirits and unclean things. It's designed to say it's been ruined. But then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. Pay her back even as she has paid. Give her back double to according to her deeds, and the cup which she has mixed to mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, and to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning." For this reason, one day her plagues will come, and one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. There is an arrogance to the system of the world. I'll always rule. No one will take me out. And the reality is you and I live in that world. It's the command here. Come out of her, my people, so you may not participate in her. It's, it's no different than, than, the, than what Jesus prayed. Lord, I ask that you not take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one in it. You and I are to live in the world, but never of the world. There is a clear-cut call here, even in our own day. We're not living in, in the moment where the doom of Babylon is being announced, but make no mistake, there is a clear-cut call to us just as to the original readers of Revelation to understand there is a system of the world that we live and rub shoulders with every day and there is no way for us to escape it unless we are unfaithful to the Lord and silo ourselves off and, and, and cease to be a witness and, and live out our call as ambassadors or unless he takes us home and removes us. We are surrounded by it. And every one of us are tempted in different ways. Now, if you're in Christ, you're, you're not ever bound to it, shackled. You've been freed. But many days we are tempted to go back and play at the feet of Babylon, to, to, to worship things of Babylon, and praise the Lord that God is faithful and the Holy Spirit within us to bring conviction. But, but there is a system of this world 
that is easily attractive, seductive, desirable. It will meet you where you're at. It exists in the political left and the political right. It exists in communist countries. It exists in free countries. In fact, I was talking with someone earlier, as we think about Babylon, if, if Babylon as a system, the reference that Babylon set on seven hills, it, it leads some of us to wonder if Babylon as a system does not always have a geographical um, uh, epicenter in the world. And if you read, what, what, especially as we read here in a second to close out, if you read what Babylon is described as, it sounds like America, to be honest, in our world today. Now, I'm not trying to knock America or American culture. I'm not trying to say be anti-American. My point is to say we live surrounded by it. And we need to make sure that, that we do not give an inch to it because all our worship is due one. His name is Jesus. He alone is worthy and he alone will give life. So hear the call to come out because the arrogance of Babylon who sees no end to her reign will come to an end. And this is what it says. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality, who lived sensuously with her, they wept and lamented over her. And you go, why are the kings of the earth? I thought the 10 kings, well, the 10 kings and the Antichrist went against her, but that doesn't necessarily mean any other ruling leader who's still on the earth at that time jumped in. It says there's other kings, they lament, they see the smoke. And here's what's interesting. They stand at a distance. They don't run in to help. They stand at a distance. They stay away because they don't want any of it either, even though they lament, woe, woe to the great city, Babylon, the strong city. In one hour, your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron word and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon, and spice, and incense, and perfume, and frankincense, and wine, and olive oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and cattle, and sheep, and cargoes of horses, and chariots, and slaves, and human lives. By the way, there's more people in slavery today than at any point in human history. The fruit that you long for is gone from you, and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste." And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out and they saw the smoke of her burning saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and mourning saying, woe, the great city in which all, had ships, all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth for in one hour she has been laid waste. You understand why we say it's an economic system. The world economy is crippled by the destruction of Babylon. And there is this crying. And you notice there's a crying. Men are crushed that she has died. At the same time, there's a distance. They don't want any part in the judgment they see falling on her. Does that not sound like adulterous love? I want the sensuality, but, but no commitment. 
Not only that, there's a third thing that's repeated. In one hour, not you fell apart over time, not you decayed, not, wow, you know, we watched the Soviet Union. Yes, it, there was this moment it all came to a head and the Berlin Wall fell, but the things had been moving that way for a decade prior. No, in one hour. In one hour, that which seemed so powerful and propped up and mighty in one hour was brought to complete and utter and total ruin. And then there's an interjection of a voice. Rejoice, all of the earth weeps, but rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Remember, she's the one who is drunk on the blood of the, the saints and the martyrs who are there, Revelation chapter 6, at the, at the throne of God, who are crying out, God, how long must we wait? How long until you vindicate our lives? Rejoice. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it in the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and it will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets will not be heard in you any longer. And craftsmen of any craft will not be found in you any longer. The sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. Meaning there's, there's no cheeriness of weddings taking place. Your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all those who had been slain on the earth. She is lifeless. She is dead. There is no hope of her return. She is thrown as a millstone. And if you've never seen a millstone in Israel, think this table, a couple feet thick, solid rock. You know what that does when you throw it in the sea? It goes to the bottom and never comes back. And, and as the world laments, judgment is pronounced, and it's this that sets up where we're at on Sundays. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they cried up and said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne who said, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, all you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, a sound so loud it could not be ignored, so loud it was, it was, um, uh, it, it was paralyzing in the best of ways. It demanded full attention. And here's what it said, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. That sits on top of the fact that there comes a day, the system of the world that we see today, the system of this world, which corrupts the hearts and minds of our young through various forms of indoctrination from television to social media to even classrooms, the system of this world which will say out of one side of its mouth, end human trafficking, but we know out of the other side of its mouth will never do it because it's one of the most prosperous forms of wealth. This system of the world, which will look at the most innocent and most helpless lives from the unborn babies and mothers' wombs to the elderly who cannot make decisions on their own and will take 
no shortcut or will ignore no shortcut to end the life just because they don't want to deal with it. The system of this world which rewards that, which promotes that, which demands that, the system of this world which drives workaholism and materialism and gossip and slander, the system of this world which today persecutes and challenges and seeks to destroy the faithful of God, that system comes to a true crashing and burning end because our God reigns. And that ought to be the basis for why we seek loving faithfulness in our daily lives to him to flee. We got to live surrounded by the city, but I don't got to live staying in the city. That ought to be the basis for our security. We rest in the sovereignty of God and his judgment. We're faithful because we're the called and chosen. And I love how one person put it, the true theme of all revelation, and I am more convinced of this the more that we have walked through it. The true theme of all of Revelation is ultimately not answer to answer every one of our end times questions. The true theme of Revelation is to remind us Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of our worship, so choose today whom you'll worship. That's the true theme. This world worships Babylon. Those of us in Christ, we've been freed from Babylon's chains. May we ever be found to worship the Lord who is faithful and true. Mm. That's, that's the call, and it's built on good news. Even in hard times, because I will remind all of us as we close out, we just had a good rousing amen. I can get more fiery. I mean, this is good stuff. And it was read by believers who were suffering some of whom are even told by the same Jesus at the beginning of the book, and you're about to suffer even worse, so stay faithful. So we need to understand when we amen this, this is not, whoo, it's going to be all good. It's going to be comfortable. It may not be comfortable. There may be days coming specifically for us as Americans, and I'm not trying to be doom or gloom. I'm just trying to, to, to apply it honestly. You and I as Americans have, have known more freedom and health, wealth, and prosperity than any group of people in the history of the world. You and I as Americans, actually, as American believers, we cannot even actually fathom, we can't even put ourselves in the shoes of the original readers because none of us can even conceptualize what it's like to not have political representation. They had none. They didn't even have the, the, the illusion of political representation. It was the emperor, that was it. So we need to understand, when we amen this, yes, let's amen this. And let's also prepare our hearts that we amen this when it's freedom and health, wealth, and prosperity. And we amen this if an alert goes off saying a nuclear missile's been fired. We amen this if political candidates that we think are safe for the country are elected, we amen this. If candidates we think will ruin the country are, we amen that he is worthy because he is almighty and he reigns. We amen it whether it's easy or whether it's costly because he is worthy and he reigns and he is almighty and he will return. And all of the nonsense you and I see today, we will watch him pour out his faithful and true justice on every part of it. Now, I'm not trying to say that again. I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom tonight. That's not my aim. 
but it is to really challenge all of us, myself included. That's the situation our brothers and sisters who first heard this were in. And we don't get to think we're exempt from having to be challenged in the same way. He's worthy. And he's worthy not just of us doing it, he's worthy of us doing it together. Let me pray. Appreciate you being here, church family. Excited for Sunday. Jesus, you are worthy, you reign, and we praise you for that. And Father, I do pray, I recognize how easy uh, the reality is why we are, what we have experienced things uh, in terms of prosperity and safety that the majority of the world in history has never known. The, the flip side for us, um, Lord, none of us got to pick where and when we were born. You chose that. You're aware of our frailties, and you're aware that we are all looking around seeing a world uh, moving in ways that none of us have ever seen. And some might say, well, we've seen the world move towards World War before. Yes, that's true. And the last time that we went that way, planes had propellers and an atomic bomb had never been dropped. So Jesus, we recognize we are in a certain way in um, uncharted waters. And there is a fear that would very easily grip any one of us, myself included. There is a fear And there is pressure that would make it very tempting, though I've been freed from Babylon, to go play patty cake at her gates. Because her advertisements are everywhere all around. But Jesus, we just declare in this moment, you alone are worthy. And you alone are almighty. There is not a nuclear bomb that will go off until you allow it. Lord, we could be on the verge of the third world war that leads straight into the end times. We could be on the verge of a great awakening we haven't seen in several hundred years. It is not for us to know the times or ages, but it is for us, Lord, to be filled, Holy Spirit, with your power And to go be your witnesses, Jesus, to all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. May we be found faithful. May we be found faithful because we we worship you alone. And Lord, we praise you that every injustice we have faced, every injustice we see in this world, you will deal with it in full. And in these days of your patience, God, I ask that you would open doors, that you would open doors to each one of us in this room and you would fill us with the boldness and the words to say that you would open doors to a lost and dying world that is enslaved and doesn't even know they're drunk in Babylon. Men and women whom you died for out of your love, Lord, may our hearts be filled with your love. May you open doors to us individually and may you open just gates to us as a church to proclaim your gospel. And Lord, we do ask that you would bring an awakening here in Pflugerville and Hutto and Maynard and Elgin and Northeast Austin, the area around us. God, bring an awakening. 
Lord, that regardless of what takes place in this world, that you would bring an awakening, that 2024 would be a year of salvation in terms of the ministry you do through First Baptist Pflugerville. Lord, you're worthy. Thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in this room. And thank you that you, in your great goodness and grace, are allowing us to walk through whatever we are walking through together. So, Lord, may we encourage one another. May we be spurred on more. May we leave this place with hearts full. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.